Sandy, this is the fourth time we've collaborated. It's the fourth volume in the Letters of Ernest Hemingway series, and it covers this period from 1929 to 1931. So maybe you should start by just reprising where Hemingway is at this stage and how we've got here. Okay. Well, Hemingway has, he's not unknown at this point. Uh, he has published a couple of books published by small presses, small avant-garde presses in Paris. He published a very successful book of short stories in New York in our time in 1925. He's published uh, The Sun Also Rises, which in, in the UK is Fiesta, in 1926. And he has written another novel, a World War I novel, A Farewell to Arms. And as the volume opens, volume four, it's April 1929. He's been in the United States for about a year. He's had a son. He and his second wife, Pauline, have had a son, Patrick, born in 1928. And they're headed back to Europe. He has... A Farewell to Arms has been accepted for serialization by Scribner's Magazine in advance of the book publication, which will happen in September. And he and his editor, Max Perkins, have been tangling over what words he's allowed to use. And Hemingway is getting a little frustrated because he wants to use the kinds of words that soldiers really use in war. And Max Perkins is telling him that the book will be suppressed if they do that. So they're they're tangling back and forth a bit about that. Was, was the, there actual censorship at that time? Or would it just was. be that, that Maxwell Perkins was really concerned about um, the sensitivities of readers? Was it a legal thing? or? or? Well, the post office uh, in, enforced the censorship. So if they didn't, if they deemed something obscene, it didn't get mailed out in terms of, <laughs> of a publication. And, and as it turned out, uh, the second installment of A Farewell to Arms did get banned in Boston. The Scribner's magazine was taken off the stands, and that wasn't because of the language, because they'd already decided to use blanks instead of the what Hemingway wanted to use. But it was because they considered the love affair between Frederick Henry and the unmarried nurse, Catherine Barclay, to be inappropriate um, for family audiences. and. In a way, that probably helped to publicize the book even more. <laughs> Do we get uh, Hemingway's reaction to this in the course of the volume? Definitely. He's, he's really angry with Max Perkins. Um, but on the other hand, he needs to be published and wants to be published. So he finally acquiesces. But he does insist that there be blanks used in the volume to show the missing words. And to this day, the blanks are there in, in A Farewell to Arms. When the book is published in September of 1929, it is a, a runaway success. It shoots to the top of the bestseller charts very, very quickly. And Hemingway for the first time, has to really deal with global celebrity. And did he find that a very welcome and attractive thing, or, or did he object to it? Well, I think he was thrilled. Um, one marker of this might be that he, he saved clippings of reviews in scrapbooks. Those scrapbooks are preserved at the John F. Kennedy Library in Boston among his papers. 
and he filled 67 pages of his scrapbook with clippings of reviews of A Farewell to Arms. So I think he was pleased by that very much. Um, w there's kind of an amusing uh, reaction that he had to to one review that in particular, a, a reviewer um, came out and just really um, wrote, if I die, if before I die, I have three more literary experiences as sharp and exciting and terrible as the one I've just been through, I shall know it has been a good world. And Hemingway was thrilled by that. Um, and he wrote to Max Perkins, um, in spite of having written this book, when I read a review like that, I want to go right out and buy one myself. So uh, yeah, he was a little giddy, I think, with, with his success. But he also was wary of the visibility it brought, um, the demands on his time. He was very skittish about publicity, which seems odd when, at least later in his career, he was really courting publicity, it seems. But at this point, uh, he's he wrote to his mother to say, if anybody asks you anything about me, just say, I want to keep my private life private. So he's sending out that message that he wants to, to preserve his privacy. He was writing, uh, he was also starting to get fan mail. And he just didn't really know how to handle that. His, his good manners dictated that he should answer all the letters he received. But there's a, an amusing letter in the volume to Hugh Walpole, a very prolific English writer, um, saying, what do you do with all these letters? If I take time and answer them all, then I'm not going to have time to write anymore. Um, so it's kind of uh, fun to see him in this first flush of, of real uh, worldwide fame, yeah. trying to figure out how to cope with it all. He also, he he's very friendly with um, a number of other writers who are now very famous. You know, you think of Scott Fitzgerald, James Joyce, John Dos Passos, Ezra Pound. There are letters to all of these people in the volume. Did his relationship with them change because of his fame or did it develop? Do you get any sense of the nexus between them? It, it had different effects on different relationships. The relationship with F. Scott Fitzgerald is particularly interesting because they had been so close when they first met in Paris in 1925. Fitzgerald was the slightly older and much more famous and successful of the two of them. And Hemingway very willingly accepted Scott Fitzgerald's mentorship. Um, he took Fitzgerald's criticism of The Sun Also Rises to Heart and completely redid the opening of that novel based on Fitzgerald's advice. It was Fitzgerald who helped him maneuver into changing publishers. He had a contract with Bonnie and Liverwright for his next three books, but Fitzgerald helped him maneuver over to Scribner's so that he could work with Maxwell Perkins, who of course was um, legendary editor of the 20th century. Uh, so for a long time, Hemingway was, was learning from Fitzgerald. And they had a really lovely, humorous uh, banter in their letters. Uh, but what's happening at this point is that the dynamic is changing. And Fitzgerald, after the huge success of The Great Gatsby in 1925, is struggling to write another novel. 
he's selling stories for fantastic prices to magazines, which he himself considers selling out. And Hemingway, too, he and, and Max Perkins talk a lot in their letters about Fitzgerald and how Hemingway wishes he would just get his act together and write as well as, as he could and stop being so self-conscious and stop worrying about the critics. And uh, if you write three bad ones uh, and you get a Gatsby out of it, then just throw away the three bad ones. But instead, it took Fitzgerald nine years to publish his next novel in 1934. And in the meantime, Fitzgerald, is his wife, Zelda, is starting to have really serious mental problems that would eventually lead to her institutionalization for the most of the rest of her life. By the time Hemingway has written A Farewell to Arms and shown the manuscript to Fitzgerald, Fitzgerald read it very, very sensitively, made suggestions, and wrote to Hemingway how he thought the, the novel should end. And thanks to Hemingway's pack rat tendencies, we have these pages. And instead of following Fitzgerald's advice at this point, Hemingway has a very cryptic little comment on the manuscript under Fitzgerald's advice. Uh, he wrote, kiss my ass, and circled it. <laughs> Do we know what the advice was? Did he want them to have a happy ending? No, he actually, there is a passage in A Farewell to Arms that is one of the most famous and beautiful passages, probably in all of Hemingway, uh, that begins, um, the world breaks everyone, um, and afterward many are strong in the broken places. And Fitzgerald wrote, that is one of the most beautiful passages in the English language, and I think you ought to end the novel with that, and it would be a very fine and fitting ending. And... That's not Hemingway used the passage, but that was not how he chose to end the book. And he cared it, at the a great Kennedy deal. Library, they, sorry. I was only going to say he cared a great deal about his endings, didn't he? Absolutely. And that is also shown. Um, and again, we have to be really grateful to him for probably what was a lot of clutter that he lived with. But the Kennedy Library has 47 different endings to A Farewell to Arms, which just shows what a painstaking craftsman he was. He wanted to get it absolutely, absolutely right. And in fact, there was a different ending between the Scribner's Magazine serial publication and the actual book publication. So he never really let it go. He, he just kept working until he had it perfectly right, which is this very um, understated ending of, of Catherine Barclay dying in childbirth. And instead of having a funeral and instead of telling everyone what happened to all the other characters afterward. We just see Frederick Henry walking back to the hotel in the rain. It's very moving. As, I, I, don't, yeah. I defy anyone to read that and, and not leave the novel completely drained themselves. Right, right. Yeah. He was writing, therefore, you know, getting to the height of his literary powers in a way. What part do you think letters played in his life? You know, where he, he's a man who writes for a living. Do you get that same sense in the letters, or is there a different flavor? Was he a great letter writer? We've got 400 letters in this volume, more than 400, for a three-year, less than three-year period. Um, I just wondered what you felt, what your sense was of how important they were to him. Well, Letters were very important to him. He, he thrived on contact with people. He was very sociable. In addition, it, there were so many contradictions with him, but you think of him as the, the lone wolf, the um, taciturn, uh, macho character. 
but he was very sociable. Um, he was very funny. Uh, he always wanted to have a gang, a crowd around to share in the fun, and he would round up uh, groups of friends to go fishing in um, the Gulf of Mexico off the Florida Keys, or he'd round up friends to go hunting and fishing out in Wall Ranch that he frequented. Uh, so he was a very sociable person, and yet, of course, the the other side of that is that writing is a very solitary and serious uh, business. And he often he had a great line where he said that he was a serious writer, but not a solemn writer. Uh, solemnity he thought was pretentious, and he but he took his writing extremely seriously. Um, letters he did not take seriously at all. So where writing 47 endings to a farewell to arms to get everything perfectly right, he just dashes off letters full of misspellings or commentary like uh, however the heck you spell that word after he's, he's made a stab at spelling something phonetically. He doesn't bother to erase. He will just draw lines through things. Um, so, it, and he even at some points talks about how uh, he's playing truant from his writing by writing a letter. He, he wrote that to his editor, Max Perkins, that it was, he felt like he was skipping school. Um, so you see the, the difference of the serious dedication to the, the writing for publication, the writing he considered his profession, his art, and really what were conversations with just an amazing array of friends and acquaintances and fans and autograph seekers. So um, there are 125 different recipients of the 430 items in the volume. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, just on the, on the practical side of things, I've always loved the fact that in the Cambridge edition we're able to reproduce the little drawings that he put in, uh, yes. in quite a lot of his letters. Um, and, you know, the he makes a little drawing of the house they've just bought or a little drawing of his broken arm at one point to show how yes. it's, it's, it's mending. Um, what part do you think those little drawings played? Is that just part of the playfulness of the letter? The fact that, he, as you say, he took them lightly. They were just they were uh, very graphic going through. Yeah, I do think it was, it was a bit playful. Um, the one I like in, in this volume is, uh, and he, he uses it in, a, in more than one letter, he was uh, riding a horse out in, in Wyoming, and the horse ran him into some low-hanging branches, and he, his face got all cut up, and he had to have stitches. Um, and in several letters to friends, he drew a caricature, a little cartoon of his face showing the stitches and, and cuts, and the comment under one of them was, new punctuation on the face. <laughs> oh, that was lovely. Speaking, yeah, of, then, speaking of, of, of wounds, um, he has a very nasty-looking wound on his forehead on the photograph that we have on the cover of this particular volume. I wonder if you right. could say a bit about that. Yes, this was a, a pretty famous accident he had, and one of the many very serious injuries and even head injuries that he incurred over his lifetime. Uh, he was, this was happened in Paris in, in March of 1928 that he got up in the middle of the night and uh, went into the toilet and pulled a chain that he thought was going to flush it and instead he 
pulled on a chain that was connected to a glass skylight, which came crashing down in huge shards and uh, gave him a, a, a nasty gash on his forehead that required many stitches and left a lifelong scar. There was always, if you see pictures of him, there's a, a lump on his forehead where that skylight hit it. Um, he was in a photo session in Paris. It may have been pre in some of the, the photographs, he's wearing a hat to cover this. Um, and in fact, uh, for volume three, we used one of those photographs with the hat, which is very artistic looking, makes him look very um, left bank, bohemian. Uh, but I like this uh, photograph for this particular volume because he, this was a photograph, the one with the big scar on his forehead is the one that Scribner's used in their publicity for A Farewell to Arms. However, I think they felt their readers would be uh, repelled by the blood and the gore of the scar, so uh, they, they um, eliminated the scar in reproducing that photograph. I've seen in the Princeton archives of, of the Scribner archives at Princeton University Library, they have a photograph with what looks sort of like white paint over it to, to obliterate that scar. So you have sort of the pretty face and and then I wanted to show, and, and it's so emblematic too, he was getting um, banged up and all his life and he, he did have some, another very serious injury in the course of this volume um, in a car accident. He, it was November 1st, 1930, and he was out in Wyoming driving with John Dos Passos in the passenger seat on a country road and Apparently, his story was that he was blinded by the oncoming lights of an oncoming car. They ended up in a ditch, but his arm was so badly broken that he had to spend seven weeks in a hospital in Billings, Montana, and the doctor had to knock bone and sew it together with kangaroo tendons. Um, so that was actually a very difficult period for him, and it was his right arm, which was his writing instrument, so he spent seven weeks in extreme frustration, not to mention pain, um, and also probably some concern as to whether he was going to regain full use of that arm, which he did eventually. But um, he, he made jokes uh, to Max Perkins about how the publisher ought to be insuring him against all these accidents and injuries. It sounds as if we should have been insuring him in retrospect, so to speak, because um, <laughs> there's quite a lot more to go before... Um, uh, he really did die at the end of all yes. this. We've got him through at the end of volume 4 to 1931. He himself is in his early 30s now, um, but there's a long way to go, isn't there? We've got, That's right. um, for the Letters Project, we're projecting uh, about 17 volumes, I think, altogether, um, depending to some extent on how many letters still, new letters still become available. Um, what have we got to look forward to? A lot. <laughs> um, in the next volume, uh, the next volume will cover 1932 through May of 1934. Again, it seems like a pretty short span, but he's just so prolific with his letters. Um, during that period, he's traveling widely across the United States, but he's also discovered uh, fishing in the Gulf Stream of, off of Cuba, between Cuba and Key West, and he starts to spend a lot of time uh, out on the water in Havana. He also makes his first African safari in 1933 and 34. 
and when he returns to the United States in 1934, he makes a purchase of a boat that is iconic now, the, the Pilar. Uh, he bought that boat and sailed it down to Key West, and that boat uh, was beloved by him, stayed with him for the rest of his life. During the Second World War, he used it uh, to hunt for German submarines uh, in the Caribbean, which actually wasn't as much of a joke as his then-wife, Martha Gellhorn, thought it was. Um, he also is working with ichthyologists from the Academy of Natural Science in Philadelphia, and they even name a fish after him. So he, he's very seriously interested in science, and one of his early ambitions was that he wanted to be a natural scientist. Um, he also uh, is, he publishes his grand treatise on bullfighting, Death in the Afternoon, in 1932, uh, a collection of short stories called Winner Take Nothing. Uh, and that, that volume contains classic stories like A Clean, Well-Lighted Place and Fathers and Sons. And also there's a new magazine uh, that is just starting up uh, called Esquire. And he became a regular writer for Esquire. He actually complained about the title. He thought it was a little snooty sounding, especially in uh, the Depression. He didn't think that was an appropriate uh, title for uh, a popular men's magazine. but. He starts then writing regular letters to Esquire readers to be published uh, in their monthly magazines. And that's really where he becomes a almost a household word. Uh, people look forward to the issues of the magazine, and now his the readership is um, phenomenally large at this point. So that's it, it's in this next volume where he will really become a, a public writer. That sounds a lot to look forward to. You've been working on Hemingway for a very long time. Are you still making new discoveries? Oh, all the time. <laughs> uh, constantly things will, will surface. Um, we just last spring, uh, a woman outside of Boston discovered a in a trunk that belonged to her grandmother two letters that Hemingway had written to her grandmother uh, in 1918 when he, they were high school sweethearts. He was was writing her from Italy. So um, that uh, that has since been sold at Sotheby's. But things just come out of, of attics and <clears throat> garages. Um, you know, there was a woman in, in Boise, Idaho, who contacted me because she was cleaning out her garage and found an old briefcase that belonged to her father. And it had a letter in it from Hemingway. This woman's father had run the Hertz Rent-A-Car franchise in Boise. And Hemingway was writing because he was afraid that he hadn't properly paid his bill. And he wanted to be sure that everything was straight between him and the Hertz Rent-A-Car agent. Um, so what's, it's fun to see the mixture of um, writing about writing in the letters. He. he does a lot of, of that with Max Perkins, talking about the next book and the contents and his beliefs about writing, but then also just these sort of delicious mundane details uh, like rental cars and uh, arrangements for um, his son's tonsillectomy and things like that. I remember uh, that while we were actually producing volume four, you found a new letter that we needed to insert at a very late stage. It's really nice to see the collection increasing all the time 
in that way. That's actually, and, and unfortunately, it was the second letter in the volume, which yes, meant that everything else had to be shifted. But it it did fill in a gap, and, and our, we are committed, um, and we're delighted, too, that Cambridge is committed um, to making this as complete a collection as possible. Yeah, it's um, one of the arrangements, isn't it, of the edition, that it has to be all the letters. Um, and that's creating a lot of challenges, but in the end, the collection will be so comprehensive um, and so much of it unpublished till now uh, that it's going to be continuing to be something really new and fantastic. We're so grateful to you, Sandy, for, for steering the project through so beautifully. Well, thank you, and I'm really grateful, and I know that Patrick Hemingway, Hemingway's son, who's now 89 years old, is just delighted at how this is turning out. Excellent. Thanks, Sandy. Thank you.